Uh, we're in Second Chronicles, I believe. And from what I understand, since my iPad is completely acting screwy on me, um, I believe we're in Second Chronicles chapter 21. We uh, read through... Uh, the end of Jehoshaphat's reign. And so we're in Second Chronicles 21. Uh, real quick, guys, if you are here for the first time, this is the read and rant. We spent about 20 to 30 minutes reading scripture and we spent another 20 to 30 minutes reflecting and ruminating over the text. The whole intention that we have today is to hear from God. This isn't a Bible study. This is a meditation of scripture. I want to give a heads up to those of you who are our regulars, our patrons who are here. By the way, thank you to all our patrons who support the ministry, who support what we do. It's your support that's given us the capacity to be able to um, host things like Bible studies on Tuesday, Tuesday nights. Um, however, today, um, I won't be able to facilitate our Bible study tonight. Um, we will uh, get back on schedule next Saturday. Let me start next Tuesday. I apologize. And so I look forward to seeing you guys there. Just want to give you the heads up. You, you should have gotten the message on Patreon, but if you didn't and you're here, just to give you a heads up. We are moving Bible study since we're concluding, uh, maybe not concluding, but we're getting through a lion's share or near conclusion of our study of the book of Revelation where we're digging deeper. But what we do here is a meditation. We just want to hear from God. We're going to meditate on the scripture and then we're just going to speak into what God is speaking into us in our time in the reading of the word. And, and the way we do that, and I want you guys to commit to this as we spend time to, in reading the text, is to ask three questions. God. What are you revealing concerning yourself? God, what are you revealing concerning people? And the third question is, God, what are you revealing concerning me? Discern me. And so that's what we're here to do. We're here to engage in the word, to hear from the Lord concerning what it is that he wants us to hear from him today. Father, I ask, Lord, that you would be with me, be with each and every one of us. We've got people from all over from different time zones, from different areas, different contexts, different regions of the world coming together today for the reading of the word. Father, I pray that you would bless us today. Lord, engage with us as we engage with you in this word, Father. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Second Chronicles chapter 21, and I'd like to encourage you... Uh, uh, Thank you for that. I'll double check on that. But I want to encourage you to read 2 Chronicles chapter 21 and I'll begin. And you guys read along with me. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. You can read from whatever version you find most expedient to you. But let's get right into it. Father, speak to us. And Jehoshaphat rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. He had brothers, the sons of Jehoshaphat, Azariah, Jael, Zechariah, Azariah, Mikael, and Sephatiah. All these were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. Their father gave them great gifts of silver and gold and precious things which fortified city, with, with fortified cities in Judah. But he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. Now, when Jehoram was established over the kingdom of his father, he strengthened himself and killed all his brothers with the sword and also others of the princes of Israel. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem and he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done, for he had a daughter. He had the daughter of Ahab as a wife. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, yet the Lord would not destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he made with David, since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. In his days, Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves. So Jehoram went out with his officers and all his chariots with him. And he rose by night and attacked the Edomites who had surrounded him and the captains of the chariots. Thus, Edom had been in revolt against Judah, Judah's authority to this day. At the time, Libna revolted against his rule because he had forsaken the Lord of his fathers. Moreover, he made high places in the mountains of Judah and caused the inhabitants of Jerusalem to commit harlotry and led Judah astray. And a letter came to him from Elijah the prophet saying, 
Thus says the Lord God, your father, David, the Lord God of your father, David, because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat, your father, or in the ways of Asa, king of Judah, but have walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and have made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot like the harlotry of the house of Ahab and also have killed your brothers who sorry have killed your brothers those of your father's household who were better than yourself behold the lord will strike your people with a serious affliction your children your wives and all your possessions and you will become very sick with a disease of your intestines until your intestines come out by reason of the sickness day by day moreover the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the spirit of the Philistines and the Arabians who were near the Ethiopians. And they came up into Judah and invaded it and carried away all the possessions that were found in the king's house and also his sons and his wives so that there was not a son left to him except Jehoaz, the youngest of his sons. After all this, the Lord struck him in his intestines with an incurable disease that it happened in the course of the time after the end of two years that his intestines came out because of the, his sickness. So he died in severe pain and his people made no burning for him like the burning for his fathers. He was 32 years old when he became king. He reigned in Judah, sorry, he reigned in Jerusalem eight years and to no one's sorrow departed. However, they buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. Ahaziah in chapter 22. Then the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah or Ahaziah, his youngest son, king in his place. For the raiders who came with the Arabians into the camp had killed all the older sons. So Ahaziah or Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, reigned. Ahaziah was 42 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother advised him to do wickedly. Therefore, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab, for they were counselors after the death of his father to his destruction. He also followed their advice and went to Jehoram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, to war against Hazael, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead. And the Syrians wounded Joram. Then he returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which he had received from Ramah when he had fought against Hazael, king of Syria. And Azariah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to Jehoram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. His going to Jehoram was God's occasion for Ahaziah's downfall. For when... <clears throat> He arrived, he went out to Jehoram against Jehu, the son of Nimshi, whom the Lord had anointed to cut off the house of Ahab. And it happened when Jehu was executing judgment on the house of Ahab and found the princes of Judah and the sons of Ahaziah's brothers who served Ahaziah that he killed them. Then he searched for Ahaziah and they caught him. He was hiding in Samaria and brought him to Jehu. When they had killed him, they buried him because they said, He is the son of Jehoshaphat, who sought the Lord with all his heart. So the house of Ahaziah had no one to assume power over the kingdom. Let me grab that. Now when Atalia, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal heirs of the house of Judah. But Jehoshaphat, but Jehoshabeth, the daughter of the king, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being murdered and put him and his nurse in a bedroom. So Jehoshabeth, the daughter of King Joram, the wife of Jehoiada, the priest, for she was a sister of Ahaziah, hid him and Atalia so that she did not kill him. And he was hidden with them in the house of God for six years while Atalia reigned over the land. In the seventh year, Jehoiada strengthened himself and made a covenant with the captains of hundreds. And Azariah, the son of Jehoram, and Ishmael, the son of Jehoan, 
Jehohanan, Azariah the son of Obed, Messiah the son of Adiah, and Elishaphet the son of Zikri. And they went throughout Judah and gathered the Levites from all the cities of Judah and the chief fathers of Israel, and they came to, to Jerusalem. And all the assembly made a covenant with the king in the house of God. And he said to them, Behold, the king's son shall reign. As the Lord has said of the sons of David, this is what you shall do. One third of you entering on the Sabbath of the priests and of the Levites shall be keeping watch over the doors. One third shall be at the king's house and one third at the gate of foundation. All the people shall be in the courts of the house of the Lord. But let no one come into the house of the Lord except the priests and those of the Levites who serve. They may go in for they are holy. But all the people keep watch. Sorry, all the but all the people shall keep watch of the Lord. And the Levites shall surround the king on all sides, every man with his weapons in his hand. And whoever comes into the house, let him be put to death. You are to be with the king when he comes in and when he goes out. So the Levites and all of Judah did according to all Jehoiada the priest commanded. And each man took his men who were to be on duty on the Sabbath with those who were going off duty on the Sabbath. And Jehoiada the priest had not dismissed the divisions. And Jehoiada the priest gave the captains of the hundreds with the spears and the large and small shields which had belonged to King David that were in the temple of God. And he said all the people, every man with his weapon in his hand from the right side of the temple to the left side of the temple, along by the altar and by the temple all around the king. And they brought out the king's son, put the crown on him and gave him the testimony and made him king. And Jehoiada and his sons anointed him and said, long live the king. Hmm. Now, when Atalia heard of the people running and praising the king, she came to the people in the temple of the Lord. When she looked, there was the king standing by the pillar at the entrance. And the leaders and the trumpeters were by the king. All the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets. Also, the singers and musical instruments and those who led in praise. So Talia tore her clothes and said, treason, treason. And Jehoiada the priest brought out the captains of hundreds who were set over the army and said to them, take her outside under guard and slay the, with the sword whoever follows her. For the priest had said, do not kill her in the house of the Lord. So they seized her and went by the way of the entrance of the horse gate into the king's house and they killed her there. And Jehoiada made a covenant between himself, the people and the king, that they should be the Lord's people. And all the people went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. And they broke in pieces its altars and images and killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. Also, Jehoiada appointed the oversight of the house of the Lord to the hand of the priests, the Levites, whom David had assigned in the house of the Lord to offer burnt offerings of the Lord, as it is written in the law of Moses, with rejoicing and with singing, as it was established by David. And he set the gatekeepers at the gates of the house of the Lord, so that no one who was in any way unclean could enter. Then he took the captains of hundreds, the nobles, the governors of the people, and all the people of the land, and brought the king down from the house of the Lord. And they went through the upper gate to the king's house and set the king on the throne of the kingdom. So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet, for they had slain Atalia with the sword. Joash was seven years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord <clears throat> all the days of Jehoiada the priest. And Jehoiada took two wives for him, and he had sons and daughters. Now it happened after this that Joash set in his heart on repairing the house of the Lord. And he gathered the priests and the Levites and said to them, Go out to the cities of Judah and gather from all Israel money to repair the house of your God from year to year and see that you do it quickly.
However, the Levites did not do it quickly. So the king called Jehoiada, the chief priest, and said to him, Why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and from Jerusalem the collection according to the commandment of Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the assembly of Israel, for the tabernacle of witness? For the sons of Atalia, that wicked woman, had broken into the house of God and also presented all the dedicated things of the house of God to the Baals. Hmm. And the king commanded they made a chest and set it outside the gate of the house of the Lord. And they made proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to bring to the Lord a collection that Moses, the servant of God, had imposed on Israel in the wilderness. Then all the leaders and all the people rejoiced, brought their contributions and put them into the chest until all had given. So it was at that time when the chest was brought into the king's official by the hand of the Levites. And when they saw that there was much money, the king's scribe and the high priest officer came and emptied the chest and took it and returned it to its place. Thus they did day by day and gathered money in abundance. The king enjoyed and gave it to, the, to those who did the work of the service in the house of the Lord. And they hired masons and carpenters to repair the house of the Lord, and those who worked in iron and bronze to restore the house of the Lord. So the workmen labored, and the work was completed by them. They restored the house of God to its original condition and reinforced it. When they had finished, they brought the rest of the money before the king and Jehoiada. They made, it, they made from it articles for the house of the Lord, articles for serving and offering, spoons and vessels of gold and silver. And they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord continually all the days of Jehoiada. But Jehoiada grew old and was full of days, and he died. He was 130 years old when he died. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings, because he had done good in Israel, both toward God and his house. And after the death of Jehoiada, the leaders of Judah came and bowed down to the king. And the king listened to them. Therefore, they left the house of the Lord, God of their fathers, and served, and served wooden images and idols, and wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem because of their trespass. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. And they testified against them, but they would not listen. And the Spirit of God came to Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, who stood above the temple and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord, so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. So they conspired against him. And at the command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, his father, had done to him, but killed his son. And as he died, he said, The Lord look on it and repay. Hmm. So it happened in the spring of the year that the, that the army of Syria came up against him. And they came to Judah and Jerusalem and destroyed all the leaders of the people from among the people and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. For the army of the Syrians came with a small company of men, but the Lord delivered a very great army into their hand because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. So they executed judgment against Joash. And when they had withdrawn from him, for they left him severely wounded, for the servants conspired against him because of the blood of the sons of Jehoiada, the priest, and killed him on his bed. So he died. And they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. These are the ones who conspired against him, Zabad, the son of Shimeath, the Ammonites, and Jehozabad, the son of Shimrith, the Moabites. Now concerning his sons and the many oracles about him and the repairing of the house of God, Indeed, they are written in the annals of the books of the king. Then Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. Hmm. I'm going to um, stop right here. I want to spend a few minutes, uh, spending some, just a few minutes to reflect on the word of God. As you guys know, um, for many of you, this isn't your first rodeo. This is something we commit to every day, right? Where we're reading through scripture. Um, we have read through this chunk here from Genesis to now close to the end of Second Chronicles. We only have a few chapters left uh, in Second Chronicles, probably another week of reading, possibly. Um, left in Second Chronicles, where we're spending 20, 30 minutes a day. Today, we spent about 15 minutes just to show you how much scripture uh, we can get through simply in committing to 15 to 20 minutes a day. Um, I, I, I'm, going, I'm going to refrain from indulging in the temptation to break down every element of the scriptures that we've read here in our time together in the reading of the word. Um, I know we stopped at chapter 24. We probably had enough room to squeeze in chapter 25, but I felt it necessary to stop here 
because what I hope that you see in our time in reading is, is I hope that you see that the shift, there's a shift in the narrative of the kings. Um, we see a shift in the narrative of the kings of Israel. Remember, Israel was split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was the kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom was the kingdom of Judah. Um, and as you know, and as you should be familiar with in our times in reading the book of First Samuel and the book of First Kings, and First 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 and Second Samuel and the and the books of First and Second Kings is, you should have already heard a lot of these stories before. We've already been exposed to these. But here, what what the author of Chronicles is doing is, is the author of Chronicles is reiterating the story, but providing us a perspective. If there's anything we've learned in the book of Kings is these aren't the kings. Um, these aren't the people that we ought to celebrate. These aren't the folks that we ought to um, elevate, that we ought to espouse to become. They're not examples, right? Um, they're not examples of, you know, how we ought to be as people. They are not examples or paradigms of morality. These are not who these people are. Matter of fact, what we've learned is how they were put in position by God. But then in the end, they, they, they start, most of them started fairly well, but they don't end well. And yet now we get to Second Chronicles. And what Second Chronicles is doing for us is that Second Chronicles is giving us a picture and an insight into how God actually works through broken, sinful people. How God actually works through people who fall profoundly short of him. How God can use people who may not fit within the paradigm of moral perfection, who may not fit within the paradigm of how we ought to be and how we ought to live, and yet God is still executing his plan, his justice, and his righteousness through these particular people. Remember that these kings that we're reading about, if you notice now, there's a focus on the kings of Judah who are in the south. The kings of Judah were uh, the descendants of Solomon, who, of course, the covenant of God was given to propagate through. And so we know that God's covenant is going to come from the root of David through Solomon and will be continued through Solomon. That is through the kings or the lineage of the kings of Judah. The kings of Israel, again, they were kind of breaking off doing their own thing. And that's another conversation for another day. And yes, we've seen the stories of what happened to the kings in the north. As a matter of fact, the books of First and Second Kings provide us uh, meticulous, in, meticulous detail in regards to those kings. And yet now we're getting a little bit more detail about the kings in the south, the kings of Judah, with which the promise and the covenant of this messianic king that is to come will come through. These men are profoundly broken men. If you just paint the image of what you're seeing in the text, what you're going to see is, a, is just another episode of the Game of Thrones. I always say this, that sometimes we create these, uh, um, these PG images of, of um, you know, of the lives of these kings. We've created these sort of, uh, we, we talk about the kings and we kind of move on with their stories, not realizing that the whole purpose of the book of Chronicles is to tell us how God works through broken people. And yet, even though God works through broken people, it may not end well for them. God's promise still propagates through them, but it may not work well for them. I look at the story and we, we, we just read about um, in chapter chapter 21 of Jehoram and we see how Jehoram starts off well, but Jehoram doesn't end well. Ahaziah starts off well, doesn't end well. Then we see a whole mess. Actually, no, sorry. Jehoram doesn't start off well. My apologies. Um, I'm thinking about uh, Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat starts off well. And yet he ends, uh, he doesn't necessarily end well. We talked about that yesterday. But then we see Jehoram who comes in and man, the man just, he starts off reckless, slays all of his brothers, kills all of his brothers so as to preserve his position and his role. And by consequence, it tells us the purpose by which he slayed his brothers. 
that he was perceived as the least of them. So because he was threatened by his brothers, he felt it necessary that the only way to preserve his position is by destroying those who are close to him. Can I tell you something real quick? Be wary of people who are around you who are insecure about where they are in what they are. Be very, very concerned when you are around insecure people. Because insecure people, while you may give them position, will still operate in a destructive way because they will always perceive you to be a threat. Um, I've learned this even in ministry and I've learned this in other dimensions, even in grad school. I've learned it as well is I've learned that the most dangerous people to be close to are the people who are insecure Um, because insecure people will create and fabricate a threat. Let me say that one more time. Insecure people have a tendency and a proclivity to fabricate a threat. They will make up a problem that isn't even there. And by consequence, will use that as a means to justify why you, they must get rid of you. I never understood it, even in grad school, um, when I used to study, I was never one who was competitive, even in ministry. I've never been a competitive person. I really don't care where I am in comparison to anyone else. I'm just kind of doing my own thing. I love Jesus. I really don't care about where you are in relation to where I am. And I was always confused by why people had this thing about me, a vendetta. There was something, that they, an issue that they had with me. They were always looking to conspire against me. And I used to always look and evaluate and say, is this something that I'm doing? Is this something that I'm saying? What's causing these people to conspire against me only to find out and to realize that the issue wasn't with me. The issue was with the person. When you are around people who are insecure, insecure people tend to be comparative people. And when they start comparing themselves to you, the moment that they see or perceive themselves small before you, they will create and fabricate, um, create and fabricate an issue or a problem in order to get rid of you. Unfortunately, the brothers who they, that many had seen as better than him were the ones that he destroyed and killed. And we see how it ends for him because while you are small, this is for somebody right now who's insecure. Let me, let me, let me just, let me just help you out real quick. This is just a word of advice for insecure people is if you are insecure Your insecurity is internal. It is not external. Your insecurity is conditional upon your perception of yourself, not upon your comparison to other people. So when insecure people go about destroying enemies and people around them that aren't really enemies, but those that they fabricated as enemies as a result of their insecurity, even after they get rid of them, they still can't hold on to the positions that they hold because they were never trying to build themselves up. They were just simply trying to retain their position. This, this speaks into leadership. That there are leaders, if there's anything that is dangerous in an organization, if there's anything that is dangerous in a church, if there's anything that is dangerous in a, in a community, is to have an insecure leader. Insecure leaders will destroy. Insecure leaders will hurt. Insecure leaders will wound the people who are around them because, again, they're not operating off of the gifting and their capacity to lead, but rather they're operating off of their ability to to hold on, to maintain, and to sustain their position. And so because they're looking to maintain their position, they don't care if people bleed around them. But here's the, here's the kicker, y'all. Here's the kicker, family. That even when insecure leaders destroy their quote-unquote perceived threats, even when insecure leaders destroy who they, were, who they have perceived as an enemy, they still end up not being able to sustain their position because they didn't never they never built up the capacity to operate in the role in the position that they're in. If there's anything I've learned from Jehoram, and this is something that we're going to see throughout the theme in the Book of Chronicles from here on out, is the Book of Chronicles is going to point out to the character flaws of the leaders that weren't the kings. Jehoram's character flaw was insecurity. 
there is nothing more dangerous than an insecure person. Nothing more dangerous than an insecure husband. I can't think of something or anyone more dangerous than an insecure wife or an insecure spouse or an insecure boss or an insecure CEO, an insecure leader. They are all profoundly dangerous because insecure people aren't looking to build themselves up. Insecure leaders and people are looking to retain and sustain their position. They live a life of preservation because they live a life of comparison. And the moment that they see that someone seems to them to be better than them, they will destroy them. They will come after them to get rid of them. But here's the kicker, family. The kicker is, is that even when you get rid of them, you still cannot sustain your position. You end up losing it in the end. Because you never built yourself up for the position that you were in. This is the evil of Jehoram. He dies anyway. He doesn't live for long because of the evil that he practiced off of his insecurity. You know, as an insecure husband tends to be violent, possessive. An insecure husband in the end loses his wife. That the very thing he's trying to preserve is the very thing that he loses. Because at the end of the day, he never cultivated what he had. He only looked to preserve what he had. And a seed you can put in a box. But if you don't water the seed, the seed won't grow. And so now what they have is they have a spouse who simply complies to their threat. But not a spouse who actually loves them. And yet, isn't that what they want in the first place? Is to be loved. An insecure wife ends up losing exactly the thing that she fears. Is her husband. When she sits around and she questions him about everything, her insecurity then cultivates a husband who simply complies to the world that she lives in. And so he learns to create two different worlds, the world that she that he can comply to and a world that he can create because in the end, he can't earn her love either. All he can earn is her trust. And so he doesn't get to have her because he lives the rest of his life trying to convince this woman that he is worth being trusted. So in the end, he creates his own world in which he can find freedom to be who he is. Insecure bosses create compliant employees. They never follow your vision. They just make sure they don't get fired. And so in the end, you wonder why your employees never really get to bat with you. Well, because you're insecure and you feel like everybody's competing with you. Jehoram can teach us a little something because the reality is that for a wife who remains profoundly insecure, in the end, she loses her husband. And for the husband who lives a life of perpetual insecurity, ends up losing his wife. And the boss who is afraid of losing his position and operates in a way that destroys his enemy, ends up losing his or her position in the first place. And so in the end, we end up like Jehoram. We lose the very thing we're trying to preserve because we never built ourselves up to sustain the thing that has been given to us. It is irresponsibility and a lack of stewardship. And for those of you who are around insecure people, be very careful. It's one of the things, most critical things. I always say this to, I'm sorry, I'm ranting, y'all. I don't know why I'm stuck here because I want to get to the next part, but I have to sit on this for a minute. I have to sit on this for a minute. Um, this is for every lady here. 
for every lady here, if you're with a man and you had, and you sense any hint of insecurity, be very careful. The most violent men in homes are the most insecure men. And the one thing that they have over you is physical power and physical ability. And so they will lose, they will use, sorry, their physical prowess to try to retain and sustain their position and remain profoundly insecure. And in the end, it doesn't matter what you do because the insecurity is within. There's nothing more dangerous to a woman than an insecure man that she's with. And by consequence, for every man here who's around a woman who's insecure, is <laughs> no matter what you do, if she can't trust you, you won't ever have her heart. And she will never have your heart. And so you will live a marriage and a lifestyle of performance. Get out. Run for your life. If you are an employee and you have an insecure boss, start looking for another job. Oh, man, it's getting tough. Because guess what? They're already conspiring to get rid of you. They just haven't shown it to you yet. They're already conspiring to destroy you. And if you're that insecure boss, can I just encourage you with something? No one's trying to get rid of you. Build yourself up and ready for this? When you are built up, you ain't got to worry about what you lose. Did Solomon concern himself? Was David concerned about his role with those who are closest to him? When we read about great leaders and great kings, they're not concerned. It's not because they're better it's because they know they were called to where they are. Jeroboam kills his entire family. Then after he dies, because he has a very short-lived reign, because again, he built his entire position off of preservation. We can do another study and on another day about type levels of leadership. The most dangerous leader is a positional leader. The leader that's only a leader because someone put them in position. Another conversation for another day. But then Ahaziah, look at this. We see the story of Ahaziah. And we see how it ends for him. Following what his, what, what, uh, following the footsteps of the children of, uh, sorry, the kings of Israel. We know how it ended for him. I don't want to sit on a Hezziah, but Atalia, ooh, another one. This is Game of Thrones, y'all. They should do a show off of this stuff, man. I'm, I'm serious, real talk. They should do a show. Like, the, they should do a show off the Book of Chronicles and, like, in all of its, like, gore and glory. Real talk. It would make a good show. That's just a side note. Because, man, we can learn so much from this stuff. We can learn so much about the character flaws of these kings. We see Atalia, who essentially was doing what Jehoram did, operating on power and might, getting rid of anything that's a threat so that she can put her family into position. But Joash gets out, and they put Joash away. And Joash is being protected. And then Joash comes in to Jerusalem with a whole army of Levites. Another word for another day. Right? And then we see them come in. And, 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 and with, with all this pomp and splendor, he's got bodyguards all around him to protect him. To protect, uh, um, um, to keep watch over the doors. To keep watch at the gate of the foundation. And here, here he goes. Uh, they, then they, they coronate him as king and they provide the ceremony of coronation and then Atalia comes in and she's like yo what's going on what's happening here and Atalia 
you know, comes in and questions and, 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 and declares treason. And then they pull her out and they murk her. Not only do they murk her, they murk anybody who was even near her because, again, positional leaders who are trying to protect themselves and preserve themselves end up losing everything because they're never moving forward into anything. Another conversation for another day. Then Joash, ah, Joash has this incredible calling to repair the temple. And he repairs the temple, brings restoration to the temple because, again, remember, the, the temple was plundered um, by the by the, by, by the Assyrians. And, and, and now he comes in and he brings restoration to the temple and he builds up the temple. That's what we read through chapter 24. Puts resource, effort, and energy. Man, Joash, you're doing good. But then Joash falls astray. Hmm. The scriptures say in verse 17, now the death of Jehoiada, the king, sorry, now, now after the death of Jehoiada, Jehoiada being the priest, again, much can be said about that, that Joash, while he was young, had a wise voice behind him, guiding him. And when that wise voice was gone, Joash fell astray. After the death of Jehoiada, the king listened to them. That's another conversation for another day. For every leader here, every minister, you need to find wise, older voices. Seek wise, older people who could serve alongside you and be a moral guide to you. Another conversation for another day. Verse 18, therefore they left the house of the Lord. Now he's falling astray because he's hearing the voice of the people rather than the voice of wise counsel. Therefore they left the house of the Lord, God of their fathers, and served wooden images and idols. All of a sudden, Israel begins to creep back in. And now wrath comes upon Judah and Jerusalem because of the trespass of worshiping these wooden images and these idols. They're back again. Joash just restored the temple, y'all. And now he's bringing back all the idols that Jehoshaphat had removed. And then, of course, Joash gets a word. The Spirit of God comes upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, who stood above the people in verse 20. Thus says God, why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord. He has also forsaken you. So they conspired against him and the commandment of the king. They stoned him with the stones in the courts of the house. Thus Joash, the king, did not remember the kindness of Jehoiada his father had done to him, but killed his son as he died and said, The Lord look on it and repaid. Joash has lost his way. Jehoiada, who was his counsel, has died. He falls astray, worshiping wooden images and idols, veering away from the will of God. His son comes up to him to rebuke him. Zechariah comes before him and he stones Zechariah to death as if destroying the messenger destroys the message. And then Joash dies because the message still remains regardless of what you do to the messenger. Joash dies. And I think what is really interesting about this text in verse 26, it says, these are the ones who conspired against him. Zebad, the son of Shimeath, the Ammonites, the Jehozabad, the Shimrith, the Moabites, now concerning his sons and the many oracles about him and the repairing of the house of God. Indeed, they are written in the annals of the books of the kings. Then Amaziah, his son, reigned in this place. I want to stop here. Joash did what God called him to do, but it still didn't end well for him. And I'll close with this thought. There are many of us who will confuse God using us with being in the perfect will of God. There are many of us who will see how God uses us, 
But it doesn't mean that God is good with us. Just because God uses you doesn't mean that God is good with you. Did y'all hear me, fam? And for those of you who are on the other side of it, don't ever confuse God using someone with God being good with someone. Just because God is working his story through you doesn't mean that God is good with you. I've had people who get confused when a minister of the gospel or um, a preacher or someone who's being used by God. They say, oh my gosh, look at this preacher who's been used by God. People are coming to Jesus. People are coming to Christ. Look at how God is working miraculously through this person. This person is being healed. This person is being delivered. Wow, God is restoring a whole generation through this person. And then what happens is they find out about what happens behind closed doors concerning this person. And immediately upon them finding out what happens behind closed doors, they question everything that God did through the person. And what I realized, family, is that for many people, the reason why they, it confuses them and they can't understand how God can use or that God was working and moving through that season is because they have not yet separated what God does through a person and what a person does. There are many people in the body, especially in the body, who will see God using a person and automatically confuse God using a person as God being the person. They will see how God is flowing through a person. They'll see how a person prophesies and preaches. They'll see many people come to faith in Jesus Christ. They'll see people healed. They'll see all of that. But they can't separate. And they, they've, they've reconciled God to this person in a way that if God is using the person, then God must be good with the person. There are people that I've heard who lose their faith in God because they found out that the man they came to Jesus with was X, Y, and Z. I don't need this. You, you, you can fill in the blank. We've heard stories about what people who have been used by God have done. And immediately, we question whether or not what God did through them was God doing it through them because we have not yet separated what God does through a person and what a person does. Just because God can use a person to institute and instigate a revival doesn't mean that God is good with that person. And I believe this is critically important for for the church to understand. Because sometimes we will see God using a person and God working through a person and God executing revival through a person and then all of a sudden our guards fall for that person because now we think, Well, God's got to be good with that person. God is with that person. Yeah, that's not necessarily true. And so we put them in a place where they ought not to be. We make them gods in our lives. And then we become profoundly broken when we find out you were a liar and a cheat. Then what I experienced could not have been God. Can I just talk to somebody here real quick? Because there's somebody right now that's trying to reconcile how it was a God thing in their life when they came to Jesus through a person that they found out later was a scumbag. Can I talk to the person real quick who's trying to reconcile with the idea that God came to you through a person who was a creep, a criminal, who was a scumbag, and yet you're wondering, Was it ever really God in the first place? Can I tell you something real quick? Never put a person where they ought not to be. Put God where he ought to be. God will get rocks to praise him. God can get scumbags to come to you. The question is, is are you going to submit to Christ and to God? Or are you going to submit to a person who brought you to him? 
rather than worshiping the person that brought you to God, worship Christ. Fam, worship Christ. I've had people who've come to me saying, Pastor, I trust you now because the pastor I had before, I don't think I came to Jesus because of what this pastor did, what I found out that he did. No way God can be in that. Absolutely God can be in that. If God can be in hell, God can be in that. If God can be in Sheol, then God can be in that. If God can be in in, in the darkest of things, then God can be in that. God was in it and I get it. And maybe there are those of you who are even watching this right now saying, man, I just love this man of God and how God uses him. And I, and I'm, and I'm hearing his word, please receive every word that I teach, but never esteem me to be higher than I am. I am not God. I am not Christ. I am not Jesus. And the reality is, is I am as sinful as everybody else here. It's the grace of God that keeps me. Can I say that one more time? It's the grace of God that keeps me. It's the grace of God that sustains me. I have the same capacity to commit the same sins. I have the same evil spirit that can be in me, that can creep out. I have the same stuff that a lot of y'all are dealing with. Please do not esteem me higher than I am. Don't worship me, worship the Father. Worship Christ. And therefore, receive whatever the Lord is drawing through me, but never esteem me higher than I am. Paul even says that. Paul even said not to esteem him above his own measure. Do not esteem the men and women of God higher than they are. And when you understand that, then you can learn not to be overly dependent and to trust a man or a woman of God and learn to be in community in communion with him and her as a brother and sister in Christ working together to be restored and renewed in him. And for those of you who are here, you're still trying to work through your faith because a man or a woman of God you came through you came to faith through a man or a woman of God someone fathered you in the faith that you learned later on was a creep or a criminal I want to encourage you today I want to encourage you today just because God's not good with them didn't mean that God used them to get to you Amen, family. Amen, family. I love that you're here. I love that there's a level of trust that you have with me, but do not esteem me higher than I am. And and get this, this is where it gets real good. Oh man, now I'm ranting. Now I am ranting. Can I talk slowly for a minute? I'm ranting now. It's the fact that we esteem men and women of God above their measure that has created this toxic culture that deifies men and women of God. So much so that it dehumanizes them. So now they're not human anymore. They're divine. And so because they're divine, you don't say it, you act it. Okay, we don't believe that in our word. We just simply believe it in our actions. And because we deify them in this way, we can't even handle when our pastors and our prophets and our evangelists share with us challenges that they're having in their faith and sin that is creeping in their heart and the shortcomings that they have as fathers and mothers. There are pastors, and I think I posted this, I tweeted this the other day, and um, it's something that I'm going to tweet over and over again. The more I speak to pastors and ministers, the more I realize how toxic church culture is. I spoke to, I spoke to in the last two weeks, uh, 
three or four pastors in the last two weeks who have shared with me some deep, dark things. These men love Jesus, but they've got some deep, dark things going on in their life. And I asked them the question, I said, who are you going to? You know what they said to me? They said, I've got nobody to go to. I definitely can't go to my church with this. I can't go to my elders with this. Because if I go to my elders with this, they will fire me immediately. I can't go, I can't go to my church with this because if I share this with my church, people will leave simply because they think, they think I have to be perfect and I'm something that I'm not. I can't go, I can't go to anyone with this. I can't trust anybody with this. And somehow I, I was a safe enough place for them to trust me with it. And they're asking for counsel and guidance. But I left there broken about the church because we don't even have a safe place for pastors to be pastored and for ministers to be ministered because we have deified them. We have deified them in a way that if we found out what was really going on in their hearts, we wouldn't even hear the word and the message that came from them because they've got to be as close to God as they can in order for me to trust the word that is coming through you. Something wrong with that. First, let's separate God using someone with God being someone. And let's all come together to know that we've all been called uniquely by God. Some have been called to teach and preach his word. Others have been called to do it through the marketplace. Others have been called to do it through the health field. Others have been called to do it in different ways, but we've been all called to make disciples. And when we understand that, then we can learn to truly love one another instead of trying to preserve our positions in our little buildings. Family, let us close in prayer. Let us close asking the Lord, Lord, help us. Or teach us to depend on you, Father. Teach us to rely on you. Teach us to submit ourselves to you. Teach us to trust you. Teach us to see how you are moving through your people. Father, teach us how you're moving through us. Lord, allow us the capacity to submit. Lord, knowing, Lord, there's nothing impressive about us without you. You are the reason why we are where we are. And so, Father, we don't look to simply preserve positions and titles. We don't simply seek to preserve um, followings and platforms. But Lord, we seek to be in your arms, in your bosom, accepted by you, loved by you, to love others and to share the word of the gospel to those who are around us. Father, guide us, Lord, those of us who, Lord, have grown up in the faith, Lord God, to break, Lord, the pillars of thought that have been built over the many years, Lord God. I pray, Lord, that you'd remove those pillars or that you'd restore us to a new identity, a new mindset, a new thought, a new process, a new way of seeing, Lord, how you move through your people, Father, for we know that your kingdom is not in word, but it's in power. So, Father, we ask for a demonstration of your power in the lives of your people. We ask that in your name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. God bless you, family. Good to see you all. Um, I'm sorry, I kind of zoned out in reflection, so I didn't get a chance to really see many of your messages. Um, but I love you all very much. Um, I'm praying for you all. I'm going to stay in prayer. I want to thank all of you, all the patrons who support us. Listen, guys, I know you, like I say this every day, $10 a month doesn't seem like a big deal, but it's a big deal. And I'm truly grateful for all of you. I see those names. One of the things that I'm, one of the things that I'm doing now is, is that I'm committing time aside to just pray for the names that are of the patrons who support what we're doing. Cause it's, it's your support that sustains what we're doing here. Um, your support is what keeps us, uh, from going and getting a third job. <laughs> your support is what allows us to begin to reflect and to think about things that God is doing for us in the future. 
Your support allows us to think about writing books. Your support gives me the capacity now to start thinking about other ways to create content that will help build people up and to do more Bible studies. It's your support that does that. And so I'm grateful for you guys. I'm grateful for your support. I'm grateful for your commitment. And I'm noticing that some of you started off giving $10 a month um, on the Patreon, which I'm grateful for. And there are those of you that are upping it. Man, listen, I thank you. Thank you. Really, thank you so much. I I appreciate you all. 